You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, episode 150. What? That's right. Does that make you feel like you've committed an extremely large portion of your life to recording this show? Yeah, it's really suddenly plunged me into a sense of despair Some here. depression now. Yeah. What's it all worth? Where's it all What's going? What's the meaning of it all? What have we been doing? Where did, we're not getting this time back. 150 hours. That's right. That makes us geniuses or whatever, according to Malcolm Gladwell. No, that's 10,000 hours. But we're getting pretty close, <laughs> right? Or another way to think of it is think of what else we could have done with that time. Just I'll, think. Don't don't answer right now. Just no, think I'm about just, it. I'm just going to let the dead air roll while yeah. we imagined other lives for ourselves. <laughs> Are you okay? You don't, you look a little tired this week. You look a little haggard. You just cut a, like a, a, what I would describe as a dog sized yawn before we went on, went on the air. Uh, okay. I've never heard a yawn described that way. Well, you know but, how a dog uh, yawns? No, I get you. Tongue out. Yeah, I kind got of, it. that's sort of what you looked like. I, I got up pretty early this morning. Is that all right with you? How early are we talking? Around five. Hmm. You beat me by a good 45 minutes. It's not a contest. Matt Hughes would probably say that it is. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Well, Ben, once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by DraftKings.com. DraftKings.com is delivering a haymaker to the world of fantasy sports. They're introducing Daily Fantasy MMA at DraftKings.com, America's favorite daily fantasy sports site. It's easy to play. Just pick five fighters, stay under the salary cap, and you could be on your way to a serious payday. Score points for significant strikes, advances, takedowns, and more. Do not miss out. DraftKings.com awarded over $300 million last year. How much will you win? Ben, tell them about the promo code. Well, Chad, you hurry to DraftKings.com and use promo code CME to play for free this weekend during UFC 186. You could win your slice of $1 billion in prizes being awarded this year. Enter CME to play for free now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. You know who what I would who I would take? Who? I would take that Demetrius Johnson this yeah. weekend. I'd if s- I was playing the DraftKings.com daily fantasy. How savvy of you. That's my that's my uh my tip out wow. there. You just for given- the daily fantasy sports aficionado who comes to this podcast for expert analysis. Take that Demetrius Johnson. You're just giving great stuff like that away for free, huh? I would think you'd want to save this for your subscription site. We gotta start putting this stuff behind a paywall. Yeah. That's that's our problem. See, that's the thing. Man, it took us 150 episodes to figure it out, but now we got it, man. We got music this week as well. This week's music comes to us from Detroit area listener Jay Hackett and his solo guitar project, Bite the Dog. That can't be true. No one lives in Detroit anymore. That's not true. Robocop. Plenty of Other than Robocop, who? Uh, Jay Hackett. All right. Yoenis Cespedes. <laughs> All right, fine. Cleanup hitter for the Tigers. If you say so. He lives outside Detroit. Come on. It's interesting about that dude, the Cuban guy. He's a slugger, right? Outfielder. He's now played for three teams in the majors. The two teams where he has felt at home were in Oakland and Detroit. 
What are you trying to say? And the team that he didn't like playing for was in Boston. What are you trying to say about I'm saying, fine ouch, cities? Boston. <laughs> ouch for you, Boston. Anyway, if you like what you hear from Detroit area listener Jay Hackett and his solo guitar project, Bite the Dog, you can find more of it at soundcloud.com slash bite the dog. Okay. I think you'll like it. It's instrumental, no vocals. And you think I'll like that? Yeah. Because you think that... You won't get lost in the words trying to divine meaning from the songs. I know how you, you get about that stuff. It's like I do. poetry to you. I do do that. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, so Luke Rockhold trolled you with his entrance music, wore you around the cage like a hat for seven minutes, and then said the only thing that surprised him was he, that he thought you'd be faster. Ouch. That's a tough one. Man, I'm not going to lie to you. That is a tough day at the office. And in round number two, it's almost as if the UFC has realized it's better not to promise that someone is the number one contender until it absolutely has to. But also, Luke Rockhold is totally the number one contender. And in round number three, not to get all Gilbert Ival on you, but man, why Demetrius Johnson always getting fucked. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. Oh, and Master Tweet Theater. We're going to have Sir Nigel Longstock come in this week. But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Mark Featherstone. He writes, just seen a... Well, okay, first of all. just well, that's, how, that's how far we made it into yeah, this question, huh? Just saw on MMA Junkie that the UFC rankings are no longer going to be determined are no longer going to determine the Reebok sponsor pay. This can only be good news, can't it? Just saw, not just seen. Is that the kind of show it's going to be today? I guess so. All I right. mean, you got, I didn't even get two words in. Man. No. I got to say something about that. I, I'm sure, you know, if he'd have been plugging Bleacher Report, you probably wouldn't have got caught up in that. You just would have rolled right with it. Oh, don't worry. We'll get there. Yeah, I know we will. Okay, well, Mark Featherstone... Uh, I, too, am encouraged by the news that at least the UFC seems to be responsive on this issue. I mean, it took them a few months of everybody complaining and pointing out the obvious flaws with using the rankings to determine uh, the Reebok pay. And then, you know, they announced via a story in the Sports Business Journal today that they're not going to do that after all, going to tie it to experience, which also, I mean, you can point out some some problems that that system might have. But I feel like those problems are minimal compared to the rankings problems. And at least, like, it seems like the only thing that where you could base the, the pay on something that's just completely objective and that can't be manipulated by anybody. Like you, the number of fights you have is the number of fights you have. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with you. It's uh, definitely a step in the right direction. Obviously, as soon as the, the, the rankings thing came out of the mouths at the press conference, however many months ago it was now, we knew that that was going to be a problem. We knew that they weren't going to end up basing fighter sponsor money on janky ass rating rankings where you can get pulled out at, at a moment's notice if you're, if you're Nate Diaz. Uh, and uh, basing it on tenure, I think is, a, is a step in the right direction, but like, I think I have three overall points about it. Number one, it's weird now that we are going to start basing uh, financial payouts on tenure, but we're still going to pretend that we were talking about independent contractors. Like that makes your position as an independent <laughs> contractor yeah. even weirder than it has been before. Yeah. 
that and we're, that we're just we're basically rewarding people based on seniority as an independent contractor, right, which is which is in and of itself very weird. Number two, like the reason that we were given at the start of this whole Reebok sponsorship thing, even before the Reebok sponsorship thing, was when Dana White was talking to Ariel Helwani about sponsorships, and he said, "Don't worry, we're gonna fix it because that's what we do. We fix shit." And then he comes, they come to the press conference, and we're led to believe that the reason that the Reebok sponsorship exists is to help the fighters like recover sponsorship money that they've lost in a declining sponsor market over the last few years. And now today we're still talking about and debating the merits of different ways that we can compensate the fighters under this new system of Reebok sponsorship. That seems weird. If like that was the reason you did this in the beginning was to like figure out a different way to compensate fighters. And we're still just kind of flying blind. That's, that seems like maybe we were misled to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, that, did you have another point? Yeah. Or was that the, the third thing is that as long as it's a completely opaque process, which I'm certain that it will be, that like it's kind of splitting hairs to talk about like the system used to divine who gets what share of the Reebok sponsorship money. As long as they're keeping it a secret, like, well, okay, that's fine. There's Let's only use reach. I feel like How about only, we use reach. <laughs> there's only so much of a secret that you're going to be able to keep this eventually. I mean, and after this announcement, I talked to somebody at the USA today, kind of trying to get some of my questions answered. Because one of the things that I saw uh, bandied about and that I was thinking about was, okay, we've heard the the deal is 70 million over six years, right? Which is like 11.6 million a year in in and some change, like 11.666 million uh per year if you figure around 500 fighters on the roster at any time uh that's like an average of twenty three thousand two hundred dollars per fighter except that you know it's not going to be averaged out like it's going to be you know they like they said this tiered structure the champions get more and then you have uh based on like how many fights you have uh so and in order to get your Reebok money, you need to step in and fight. So there's a lot of like moving elements to this math problem. Plus, you have some guys who are going to be up in the top tiers who are old and either not going to fight that much because they're old and, uh, you know, breaking down or they're going to retire or they're going to get cut. And you're going to see a lot of turnover at the bottom, a lot of new guys getting signed into that bottom tier and then getting cut before they can even make it out of the bottom tier. And so it's like how often... It, like if you assume that you're starting with this pool of money, you know how often are you going to reevaluate and see like, wait, do we need to shift the amount of money just to make sure that we're using all the money or that we're not using too much money? Like, what do you do? Do you do it quarterly? Do you look at the how many people we have at each tier quarterly, yearly? Do you do it after every damn event? Like, it seems like a a headache for the UFC. And talking to the UFC today, they said like, well. What we're going to do is in the next few weeks, we're going to announce, like, here's the money for each tier. And so we're going to be able to do the math once they do that. Uh, and they say, you know, like, all right, hey, if you're in tier three, you make eight grand uh, every single time you fight as long as you're in tier three. Like, all right, you know, like, we're going to be able to figure out, like, we know what tier three is. Like, tier three is guys with, like, you know, 15 to, to 20 UFC fights or whatever it is. Uh, we're going to be able to, to look down the roster and, and, and somebody's going to crunch the numbers. Hopefully somebody who enjoys math more than either of us is going to do that and figure out, like, here's how much money the UFC 
ballpark plans to pay these guys out in sponsorships. And then we're going to be able to compare it to the $11.6 million that we know that they have like from Reebok each year during this deal. And we're going to get a pretty good sense because one of the most pernicious phrases ever that you can imagine in dealing with any business is minus operating costs. Um, which is something that you're going to hear for some, when the UFC talks about how it's going to pay these fighters out uh, from this Reebok deal minus its own operating costs, which, man, you know, that's like minus administrative fees. That could be anything. The operator gets to kind of determine what the operating yeah, costs convenience are. Convenience fee. I've paid a sure. convenience fee before. Haven't we all? It was bullshit. So I think we're going to have to wait until like we actually hear that. And I think it's the same thing the fighters are waiting for. Like We keep asking the fighters, what do you think? Do you think this is going to be a good deal for you? Do you think it's bad? And they're like, I don't know. Show me a check. That's the thing. Like we're gonna well, have, but to- that's weird in an end of itself, right? Like that they don't know that. Like we sort of seem to know more than they do, almost when the when the story changes and when the news breaks. Well, I think in most cases we're equally ignorant uh, until something happens. But they say you know they're gonna talk to the fighters and tell them first, and then kind of tell us what the the deal is and everything. I mean, I I also think though that like. Some, when we talk about this stuff, like, hey, the UFC had to do something like this because of the declining sponsor market. And you see it in that Sports Business Journal story where uh, different managers are talking about, like, well, hey, sponsor money, that heyday is kind of over. And so, uh, you know, do, doing this gives the fighters a more consistent stream of income that they can count on rather than them having to run around and drum up sponsors for every single fight. And that's true. But I also think, like, we have to remember, like, the reasons why the sponsor market took a downturn. I mean, some of that might be just like plenty of sponsors figured out that this wasn't worth what they thought it was worth or what they were paying for it. Like the exposure that they got was not coming back to them in like sales of t-shirts with eagles holding skulls in their claws on them, uh, which I'm sure was shocking to many t-shirt purveyors out there. But also some of it was, you know, stuff like the UFC sponsor tax, I think, played a part in it. The Just the expansion of shows, and especially international shows, made it so that, you know, you just don't always know if you're a sponsor what, you're, what kind of exposure you're getting. Like a fight pass card for, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon from Berlin, if you're a sponsor trying to tell, sell T-shirts in North America, does not have the same value as being like on Fox uh, in prime time. So, I mean, I think that there's a bunch of different things that contributed to it, but it's not like the UFC can just say like, hey, downturn in the market wasn't our fault. Like a UFC contributed to to how the sponsor market changed in some ways. Yeah. And like the other thing that was, I think, probably uh, attractive about sponsorship money for a lot of these people is that it was a, a different stream of revenue that wasn't controlled by the UFC. So now you've got this Reebok money coming in. Uh, but I'll be curious to find out if this will be a situation where they can take it away from you if you've done something that they don't like. Like, remember when Michael Bisping spit at uh, Jorge Rivera's corner I do. after their fight and Dana White said afterward that Michael Bisping was going to get punished and, like, we kind of inferred or were led to believe that he didn't get his backroom bonus, which is a large part of how these guys are paid, which is a whole different kettle of fish altogether. But, like, is the Reebok sponsorship money going to be something that they can take away from you if you wear a Speedo to the Octagon? Like, you know. <laughs> You know, and I guess if you're going on just like the history of the UFC, you'd have to think that the UFC tends to uh, subscribe to the notion that every tool is a weapon if you hold it right, right. Uh, kind of thing. So I don't know. I, I wouldn't be terribly surprised to see it do something like that. But I, I, that's the thing. That's to me what's most encouraging about this change, though, is changing it to something that 
cannot really be manipulated at least like if that's what you're basing the pay on is right. people's experience unless they fire you unless they fire you which is always but the, and it's also creates a situation where it's going to affect people's contract negotiations if you're a free agent you've got like you know 12 fights in bellator and you've been killing everybody and then you want to come over in the ufc and they're going to start you out in tier one you might feel like that's a bad idea you know hopefully they'd build in some other stuff in the contract to compensate you for it or you know if you look at still like Gleason Tebow has 25 UFC fights like he's in the top tier he's topped out at this point he can't get any to a higher tier uh you know no matter what he does and yet he's probably less valuable like from a sponsor perspective than somebody like Felice Herrig who has two UFC fights or Kat Zingano who has three UFC fights so there's always going to be some kind of inequalities like built into it. I guess if we're, if we're just choosing between different inequalities, this one seems better to me. The next question this week comes from Charles the Cyclone Montgomery. We don't recommend that you include a nickname when you email, email the podcast, but we might use it if we like it. And if you're the kind of person who's going to call yourself the Cyclone, it's not like we're going to be able to talk you out of it. No, that. that's right. And frankly, I sort of fear Charles Montgomery now, so I'm going to say his his nickname because I don't want to see him angry. He writes, Paige Van Sant looked like GSP in a beautiful fucking body on Saturday night. <laughs> what did you guys think? Uh, first of all, George St. <laughs> Pierre is George St. Pierre in a beautiful fucking body. <laughs> Thank you very much. But, uh, you know, it's kind of controversial, I guess, to put Paige Van Zandt and Felice Herrig as the uh, curtain jerker of the, on the main card on Fox this past weekend, uh, cause there were a couple of straw weights that we weren't sure that they were, uh, in title con uh, contention or if they were, you know, close to being in the top 10 when there are other fighters, maybe like Tisha Torres or Jessica Penne who, who, uh, have won fights in the UFC and might be a little bit more relevant than this fight. Um, and I guess in the end, Paige Van Zandt and Fleece Herrig kind of delivered, huh? They had a fun fight out there. It was, it was, uh, good to watch. And Paige Van Zandt put in, I don't know if it was a surprising performance, but it was a dominant performance getting two 30 26 scorecards from the judges and one 30 27 scoring her second win in the UFC when she's only 21 years old. Uh, and like, you know, everything that I heard from the UFC about, Paige Van Zandt before and after uh, was kind of level-headed, I thought, just sort of talking about how young she is and how she's uh, got a lot of potential but needs to develop. Uh, and I think all of that is, is perfectly reasonable and, and perfectly right because she does, uh, you know, Dana White described her as a scrapper, which I think seems appropriate. She's She doesn't have a ton of experience. She doesn't necessarily look like the most technically adept fighter all the time, but she went out there and brought it to Fleece Herrig and kind of wore her out and won the fight that way, I guess you could say. Yeah, she definitely, like, technically not without some some holes in her game. You could see that there are plenty of opportunities where she's just giving Fleece Herrig, like, uh, a chance to get back into that fight. Uh, and fortunately for her, Fleece Herrig seemed pretty tired out, like, by the end of the first round. So she wasn't able really to capitalize on those. But she did seem to make up for some of her mistakes just with raw, youthful enthusiasm. Just never really stopped uh, and was able to keep up that attack for, for three whole rounds. And that overwhelmed Felice Herrig. And I, and I do think it was uh, a necessary win for her, especially for some of the criticism she was taking. And I, I mean, I'm not going to go ahead and say GSP in a beautiful fucking body out there because clearly she has a ways to go like as a fighter. Uh, but... I do think that in, at, there was times when I considered, wait a minute, is this a genius marketing strategy? Because they give her the Reebok deal. Everybody talks about how the hell did she get a Reebok deal with one UFC fight? She doesn't deserve it. Then they get on TV and they spend so much of the time talking about like the controversy over the Reebok deal. And then she goes out there and fights and wins. 
maybe that's what Reebok ought to do, is try to find the least deserving fighters it can, give them a Reebok deal, so that then, once they are fighting, everybody will talk about whether or not they deserve the Reebok deal. And in this way, the name Reebok gets said roughly one billion times during every broadcast. Yeah, and for all the argument about whether or not she should have wound up on the Fox uh, main card broadcast... Crazy like a fox, man. After it was all said and done, we kind of looked at it and thought, okay, I see what you're doing. Maybe perhaps a star was born. I mean, we'll have to, we'll have to wait to see if that translates into popularity and or drawing power. But like, you can do a lot worse than to put your 21 year old, uh, straw weight woman fighter sponsored by Reebok on network television and have her get a, a, a gutsy win over a, a, a steady veteran. Like, I see what you did. That works for me. That totally did. Promotion-wise. In fact, this whole UFC on Fox card, when you look at it, when Paige Van Zandt, Max Holloway, and Luke Rockhold all went out there and got wins, uh, kind of a showcase for some young UFC talent that uh, maybe matchmakers had a better plan than we gave him credit for. I that don't could know. Be. Could work out that way. Anyway, let's do one more. Curtis Bouchard. Bouchard writes, as Bleacher Reports, Jeremy Botter wrote about Bellator's signing of Phil Davis could be the start of big changes in the MMA world. Do you see fighters like Benson Henderson doing the same in the near future? If the UFC allows Davis to be signed to Bellator, where do you think they draw the line and utilize their matching rights? Uh, we wrote about this in the Breakfast of Champions newsletter last Friday, but obviously Phil Davis, light heavyweight contender, ended up signing with Bellator, crossing the aisle from the UFC over to the Spike TV and Viacom uh, side of things. The UFC had matching rights in his contract, but declined to uh, to match uh, whatever Bellator offered him, which makes it seem like Phil Davis got paid. So good, good for, for him. him. Uh, Go, Phil. Uh, but also, I think, like, kind of understandable that the UFC would let a guy like Phil Davis walk. I think, you know, behind the scenes, it sounded like Phil Davis and the UFC had been on the rocks for a while. This wasn't a, a short contract negotiation. Uh, and now, now he's over in Bellator. But, like, as Jeremy Botter from Bleacher Report wrote last week when it happened, I was kind of surprised to learn, you know, that, or like interested to learn, I guess, to say that, uh, you know, Ben Henderson is going to be in his, the last fight on his contract is the next one coming up. And it will be, I think, interesting to see what happens with these guys like, uh, Ben Henderson and like Phil Davis guys in Henderson's case, who used to be the champion, but lost it. And now is kind of in a weird place. We don't know if he's going to be the champ again. Like, it'll be interesting to see, what happens, how the UFC goes about those negotiations, knowing now that Bellator could be a real player ready to snap some of those people up. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, too, depends uh, what division you're talking about with some of these guys. Like, I think, you know, you look at Phil Davis in light heavyweight, and I feel like the UFC probably felt like, okay, we saw the ceiling. We saw where this guy was going to go. We've got a ton of good players at light heavyweight right now. We don't necessarily need to pay through the nose to keep a guy like Phil Davis, uh, you know, have fun in Bellator kind of thing. I am I think Well that's a little strange though too, because light heavyweight's like the shallowest division. Like you could let light you would let fifty lightweights go and still have eighty of them. Like Bell or a light heavyweight, it's you get down around the back end of that top ten and things get ugly down there. Yeah, but I think if you're the UFC right now, you're looking at like, hey, we've got three, four, five solid light heavyweights that we can count on, uh, that are or people that fans care about and are gonna pay to watch. Uh, plus, if Phil Davis goes over there to Bellator and becomes Bellator champ, that kind of lo looks good for you if you're the UFC. And like, that's not an unrealistic possibility for him to go over there, steamroll through guys like Liam McGeary right. and even the big homie Manny Newton 
and become Bellator light heavyweight champion and just kind of dominate that division. And then the UFC can be like, see, look, that guy, he couldn't really crack the top over here. And he's the best guy in that organization. What does that tell you? On the other side of that coin, though, one of the questions I've been thinking about since this news broke is, do you think Phil Davis can go over there and kind of reinvent himself? Like, he becomes already the highest ranked Bellator light heavyweight, according to, like, independent rankings, like SureDog. Uh, you know, so, tech, like, in theory, he's already their best light heavyweight. If he does, in fact, go over there and whips everybody's ass, wins the title, has some good fights, Phil Davis is a guy who can who can do some stuff on the mic. He can be a personable guy. He can be a, a an entertainer guy like can phil davis go over there make more money than maybe he was making in the ufc and also coming out come out of this thing kind of with a rehabilitated image so to speak if he gets some big wins hopefully i mean i kind of like to see phil davis uh really play this one to his advantage he seems like a nice guy so you'd like to see him be able to turn that around i mean i was thinking with this question with like a guy like benson henderson it seems like you know you talk about a guy who's kind of had a turnaround like he is would seem to be in the best possible situation uh aside from actually being the UFC title holder uh to go into a contract negotiation right now like the old idea that like he was this overly careful weirdo dude who fans just couldn't connect with seems to have fallen by the wayside the new Benson Henderson who will just show up and throw down with whoever you got volunteer to save these cards and be calling people out on Twitter. Seems like a lot more fun. Fans are getting really into him. Now's the time to no negotiate a new contract if you're Benson Henderson. Uh, so, I mean, I, but I also think like this again reminds us of the importance of some kind of competition, like real competition in the MMA space to give fighters these kinds of options. Because otherwise when these guys near the end of their contracts and the UFC, you know, sees them with one fight left on their contract and it's just like, Hey, let's do a new deal. You know, there's not like a clear thing that the UFC can tell you, like, we're looking for you to do this if you want to reach this level contract-wise and pay-wise. You know, it's kind of based on this amorphous feeling of like, well, how popular are you? How much do people want to see you? And what else could you possibly do if you wanted to walk away from here? Now, with people being able to actually prove, like, here's what we could do. We can go over there, see that big pile of cash that Viacom is sitting on. I'll just go over there and, like, gather up a little bit of it into my arms and then walk away with it. Like, I could do that. And so that, I think that that is going to lead to some better deals for some guys who are going to end up sticking around in the UFC, which, I mean, that's... Kind of what we want is to see the fighters actually get paid for going in there and doing this damn thing. You know, it's interesting for Phil Davis, too, which is something that I didn't think about until I dragged and dropped the picture of Phil Davis into the Breakfast of Champions last week. He probably gets to keep his Affliction sponsorship now when he goes over to Bellator. Uh, so that could be another lucrative thing for him. I have no idea how much he's getting paid for that or, you know, what what that's worth to him. But, like, Affliction, pretty big sponsor. So maybe that that also helps him out to be able to uh, to keep that if he goes over there, if he does keep it. And a, a helpful little negotiating tool for Bellator to be able to talk to these fighters and be like, you know, kind of take the Obamacare approach and like, do you like your sponsors? Then you can keep your sponsors. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us while you're there. You can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. We've been talking about it this whole time. It comes out on Fridays, catches you up on the news and notes that we missed from Monday to Friday when, you know, we're not recording the podcast. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
then if you weren't convinced by his two minute and 31 second TKO over Costas Philippou or his two minute and eight second defeat of Tim Boach via inverted triangle Kimura or his five minute 57 second submission of Michael Bisping just last November. It felt like Luke Rockhold got a statement win this past weekend on Saturday night at UFC on Fox when he just pretty much clobbered Leoto Machida. Worm uh, around like a button. For two and a half rounds before finally uh, forcing the rear naked choke victory. And this was one of those victories that kind of reinforced the idea of how good and well-rounded Luke Rockhold is. Because even though in the very, very early going, he got tagged a couple few times by Machida. Uh, and it kind of looked like maybe within the first minute or so that this was going to be Machida's night. Uh, Rockhold clipped him with a little bit of a punch and Machida either slipped or fell down. And from then on, once Rockhold got that top position, uh, Machida just never really got back into it. So, uh, the UFC won't confirm Luke Rockhold yet as the number one contender, but I'd be astonished if it doesn't turn out he's taken on the winner of Chris Weidman versus Vitor Belfort. What did you think? You know, it seemed like a lot of people were trying to find the exact moment where Leona Machida went from looking pretty good to looking like he just had no idea where he was or what was happening. And I, a lot of people pointed to that elbow at the end of the first round, which was a really hard elbow, like kind of right above the temple, like yeah. right above the ear there. Looked illegal in, in real time, but on the slow motion replay during... Luke Rockhold's interview with with Joe Rogan after the fight was over, clearly to the side of the head above yeah. the ear. And a bad one because he had uh, Machida kind of flattened out there to where his head really had nowhere to go, and so it just absorbed all the impact. But to me, he looked off even before that. Like I, that that slip or the, the punch, I mean, I went back and watched that one kind of on slow motion, and it looks like like Rockhold throws a right hand that, and the right hand seems to kind of go past his head and kind of wrap around. It looks like maybe his wrist maybe kind of clocks Leota Machida in the ear or behind the ear and messes up his equilibrium a little bit. Uh, and then once Rockhold gets him on the mat, he's just sort of mauling him there. Uh, and it just, you know, after Machida got up to go back to his corner at the end of the round, you can tell he was still woozy when he started the second one. It looked like if you and I were to have a few drinks and then do our best Machida impersonations, you know, like he just didn't look like it wasn't full Machida right. in there. And then uh, by the time, you know, he got him down and was beating him up and, and got that choke in, Machida really didn't have a whole lot of defense left, uh, which Joe Rogan had a pretty harsh uh, description of there at the end. Uh, like, but I mean, this is one of those things where it's tough to say, like, did Luke Rockhold just go out there and absolutely dominate uh, the same Leota Machida who went five rounds with Chris Weidman just now? Was it just a difference in how the matchup stacked up? Did Machida take a hit he couldn't recover from? Like, what happened there? How do you put that in perspective? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, for all of his greatness, Leoto Machida does turn 37 years old at the end of next month. And that's pretty old for a fighter and pretty old for a fighter who fights in the style of Leoto Machida, whose thing has always kind of been being more elusive than his opponent, being, uh, you know, fairly athletic and uh, able to draw guys into his kind of fight and then able to make them pay with counterpunches. Like, 
uh, I'm I'm not a, a, a an MMA coach or a, or a scientist. What? But uh, I had assumed you were both those I things. Would, I would wager that that's not a style that ages well. You know what well, I mean? I, mean, like I think you, it's probably better than a style like where you just like it relies on you being able to take a lot of damage. I mean, he might be sure. 37, but you know the the year the miles on the odometer are are not yeah. the same as the yeah, years. Yeah, Leota Machida's style relies on his own cat like quickness. That's like, true. That's the thing that that he has always relied upon. Which you know I can say this from personal experience once you get up around 37 years old which i in fact am uh the the small amount of cat-like quickness that perhaps you possess in your in your younger years starts to fade a little bit and maybe that's where leoto machida was is at now and in fact i was a little bit worried he was going to retire in the cage when this was over because uh while they were interviewing luke rockhold like you could kind of see machida still pacing around in the background in the cage and i thought to myself uh oh like we might get i wonder if machida's going to call off the machida era here uh in, in a minute but like i don't know man like even though he has been beaten by luke rockhold and beaten by chris weidman like and even at 37 years old he probably beats a lot of guys in the middleweight and light heavyweight top 10 yeah still yeah, yeah it's it's not a question of like can he keep hanging around and and keep getting paid to do it it's does he want to uh i mean first of all i'm i'm shocked to hear that well, now he knows now that he knows about the tenure for the for the reebok money he'll yeah. probably stick around another 5 years yeah, man yeah yeah just try to get some fights in there uh I'm just I'm sad to hear about the diminished quality of your own cat-like quickness. You're not sad at all. You're sitting over there looking to take advantage of it. <laughs> Me at a where sprightly, is my wallet? At a sprightly 35. I, I swear I, I had my wallet in my pocket when I we started this. Exploit your rapid deterioration in front of our very eyes. Uh, but you know, I think the thing that really struck me was like your Luke Rockhold, right? Great win. Then he goes out there and he gets on the mic and it's immediately like setting the sights on Chris Weidman. Hey, you go out there, do your job. I did my job. You know, basically Weidman has to go beat Belfort and then hopefully we can meet again in Madison Square Garden, uh, around the same, the same geographical region later in the year and both make a whole bunch of money. I kind of surprised me, I guess, that like Luke Rockhold seems to still hold a lot of, uh, animosity toward Vitor Belfort. Uh, every time he, do you? I would too, but at the same time, like, I guess maybe I would at least entertain the possibility that if Vitor Belfort won the title, like, then I could get another shot at B Vitor Belfort and get a chance to avenge that. It seems like everybody is just kind of, like, I don't know if it's just, there's too much time that has gone by since the Weidman-Belfort matchup was originally made. I don't know if it's just that we feel too ambivalent about Belfort because of his history with steroids and testosterone use. Uh, but it seems like everybody's just kind of like, all right, let's get the Weidman Belfort thing over with so that Weidman can fight, uh, Luke Rockhold and, you know, the, the two good looking American dudes can show up in New York City and make a bunch of money for everybody. Yeah. And I think we'll talk about that more probably in, in round two when we get a little bit deeper into the middleweight title picture. But like to your point with Luke Rockhold right now, he's in a good position no matter what happens. If Weidman wins, then Luke Rockhold versus Chris Weidman would be a pretty dope main event at Madison Square Garden if you were going to try to put together some kind of a mega card. Would watch. And if Belfort wins, then you've got the natural revenge factor. Uh, since Bel Belfort kicked him in his damn face and knocked him out in Brazil while, while he, on was, TRT. he was the testosterone enriched version of Vitor Belfort. So, uh, 
So we'll see if that happens. But more more to Rockhold, though, before we finish out this round. Did you think that this was a heel turn for him at all? He comes out to the Karate Kid Joe Esposito song, You're the Best Around, which I don't know if he meant that to be a not-so-subtle jab at Leota Machida's oh, come on, of Karate course. Kid style, but did. that's definitely how it went over. Then he jumps on the mic. Uh, and kind of channels Paul Buentello for a second when he said, did you not hear my music? I'm the best around. And then silence. Yeah. <laughs> but then he gets on the mic and talks about how, like, he basically thought Machida was going to be faster. Like, he basically said he thought he was going to have more trouble with Machida if, if then he did. And we'd kill Miles Jury for saying something like that. I don't that, mean to right? be cocky or anything. But then you got Luke Rockhold doing it, and you know, when he gets on the mic and he starts talking like that, and he's so good looking and tall and athletic, you kind of start to get the feeling like, uh, I bet a, things, a lot of things break Luke Rockhold's way in life, don't you think? Like, did, did, was <laughs> he's any on of this... the billionaire matchmaker trying to get girls to go down on him on a boat, shit like that, right? <laughs> did, any of this, did any of this rub you the wrong way in terms of the Luke Rockhold total performance? No, I mean, I think... I don't think everybody has to go out there and try to be, you know, a good guy superhero all the time. Like, I think the key is showing, like, some kind of personality, giving people some way to remember you uh, and to get excited about seeing you out there again. And if you're going to be the kind of, like, captain of the football team dude who gets all the breaks going his way uh, and is enjoying the hell out of them as they're doing that, then I guess that's fine. Like, I guess that that is something for us to to watch and then see like, all right, is this guy, uh, this wrestler dude going to roll in out of the club in Long Island, uh, take off his dress shirt that he'd already halfway unbuttoned, uh, you know, rub the axe body spray off of his torso and then beat you up. Like, I don't know. That seems like a, an interesting matchup to me. And I, I think that it's not going to be too hard to get a whole lot of people interested in that. Like, I guess I'm not too worried. Like, I would say the it would be a bigger problem for Luke Rockhold if he just tried to be like generic, likable, um, good-looking. Like dude. that one time that Strike Force uh, promoted him as a surfer, a surfer, <laughs> and a surfer and an athlete. You're right, though. That like, yeah, and that's been the problem for Luke Rockhold, right? It's like nobody really knows. Right. Like, what do you make of him? Well, like, and Wyman was on TV saying he's not excellent at anything after it was over when he and and Daniel Cormier were cutting promos like they were on Saturday Night's main event or whatever. But. uh Luke Rockhold, you're right to say that this Weidman-Rockhold fight seems like the kind of thing that could happen in the parking lot of a nightclub. Like, I don't remember the name of the bar in Tank Abbott's novel, Bar Brawler, but like... There's several. It seemed like it seems like the surfers and the New York wrestler dudes could spill out into the parking lot and engage in a throwdown, and the two leaders could be Luke Rockhold and Chris Weidman. Yeah, would watch. I would definitely watch that. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. Uh, Sir Nigel Longstock is here, and we are going to engage in some Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am limber as the timber. I thought that was actually going to turn out a lot worse than it did, Mm. based on the look on your face when you started that. It bends gently and is long and narrow. Well, let's let's stop it right there. Well, uh, I guess, against my better judgment, I'm going to go ahead and ask, is there a theme to this week's Master Tweet Theater? There is, sir. The theme is aphorisms 
<laughs> well, okay, I guess that one is fitting, since that's the medium really Twitter is most suited for. Uh, I guess whenever you're ready, go ahead and hit us with the first one. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. Aphorisms. Tweets written in the aphoristic style. We got it, thanks. <clears throat> Aphorisms. Tweet the first. Take heed! Be careful with your words. Once they are said, they can only be forgiven, not forgotten. Is this, first of all, is this attributed, is this a quote attributed to somebody, or is this, like, are we somehow reading tweets from, like, old-timey knights or something? I presume... it starts it, with take heed. It does, and no living person has said take heed since the death of Calvin Trillin. Um, but I presume it is a quote because it is in quotation marks, but it is not attributed. That's, I think, a clue, Chad. Yeah, that sounds like a copy and paste job from Rich Franklin to me. That's going to be my guess. Really, my guess is going to be the poet Philip Roney. This might be related to his beef oh, with hey. uh, with Joe hey. Schilling. Just thinking out loud. I mean, especially because making a quote, like sending out a quote on Twitter and forgetting to attribute it to the whoever person is that's supposed to lend these words some gravity, that sounds like a poet Philip Roney kind of thing to do. Both fine guesses, both sloppy aphorists, but only one correct. It is Rich Franklin. Damn it. Take heed. Damn it. Also, I was about to accuse you of having some inside information because I thought you were going to be right. I'm just out here guessing in the wilderness. Blind. I don't know if it's totally blind. I mean, as soon as you start out with a tweet in Master Tweet Theater that is a quote that starts with take heed. I mean, your odds of a Rich Franklin are already at like 45%. Fair enough. Also, believe me when I say that words once said can, in fact, be forgotten. That is possible. <laughs> Tweet the second. Never try to hurt a man that will do anything to see his family survive and live comfortably. <laughs> Chad? Uh, I want to say Michael Bisping here. Um... I'm going to say Michael Bisping. I was going to say Max Holloway, but I'm going to go Michael Bisping. Yeah, I guess that's a pretty good one. Wants to see his family survive and live comfortably. It really, there's just a lot of space in that gray area. Yeah, it, that's it really, there are kind of different things going on there. I should say that there is a comma in here. So he could be saying, never try to hurt a man that will do anything to see his family survive. And live comfortably. <laughs> the second part is like an exhortation to you, the yeah, reader, to like live, live long and prosper. To go forth and live comfortably after this moment. Um, yeah, that's a tough one. I'm gonna say, who did you say again? Bisping. I'm gonna say Max Holloway. That's who I was gonna get. Wow, look at this guy over here. Well, I, I knew that you had those two, and they both sounded like pretty good options, so I'm going to okay. take whichever one you leave on the table. Well, I'm going to stop giving you that information then before you guess. I would rather you didn't. Ideological consensus runs high on the co-main event podcast, but both are wrong. It is Quentin Jackson. Rampage Quentin Junction, aphorizing yet again. Well, I don't know. Is really the man's driving around in like a free Tesla? Are we really concerned about his family's survival? Living comfortably, perhaps. He'll do anything to live comfortably, just like a high-priced escort. <laughs> I believe wasn't that the original tagline of Braveheart? I'd do anything to live comfortably. <laughs> they can never take away our comfort. Tweet the third. Hey, America! 
Freedom of choice is what you got. Freedom from choice is what you want. Huh. Huh, indeed. All right, we start out with Hey America, and then I guess like a kind of a, would you say, libertarian bent to I, this one? I guess, yeah, it's weird. Then I'm going to... I'm gonna do the thing you do by putting two guys on the table so that you can choose one of them if you don't, if you like. But I'm gonna say it sounds to me like either a Pat Militich or a John Fitch. I'm gonna say John Fitch. Hmm. I don't know about John Fitch saying, hey, America. I'm gonna go Matt Hughes. Okay. Both fine guesses, both libertarian leaning fighters, and both wrong. It is Josh Barnett. Ah, mm. oh, okay. I guess that kind of makes sense when I think about it. I believe he's quoting Devo and their song, Freedom of Choice. We could have been off. Our extrapolations there could have been off. I was in Devo for a while. Not the band, but the rehabilitation program for if, volume addiction. If you were just a little bit, if you're sitting just a little bit closer, I'd reach out and punch you in the face right now. Mm, I know your reach, sir. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. At Chael Sonnen. If not, shut your mouth. I'm there in your city. Hit you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know who tweeted that, but it's awesome. I'm going to say that's Vanderlei Silva. All right. Uh, Habib Nurmagomedov. It is Vanderlei Silva. <laughs> He's there in your city. Hit you in the face. Oh, man. Poof. Vanderlei Silva's in Pittsburgh, <laughs> punching the penguins. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh, wow. That, that's just a good time. <clears throat> That's not an aphorism, by the way. Well, it's sort of it. It's like a Confucius say if Confucius had a traumatic brain injury. <laughs> Just super violent. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Shittiest feeling in the world is missing your kid's birthday or birth, and I've done both. Sorry. The poet Philip Baroni? <laughs> Does Poet Villabroni have kids? I don't know. Does I'd be surprised if he doesn't. <laughs> if he does, he's missing their birthdays. I'll tell you that. I'm going to say somebody I know who has kids, Michael Bisping. Both fine guesses. Both, I suppose, questionable fathers, but both wrong. Kendall Grove. Oh. Doesn't Kendall Grove have like a whole bunch of kids? Yeah, he's statistically, he's going to miss one or two. Yeah, that's just, you're playing the odds there. Also, once you've missed your kid's birth... Is missing his birthday really the shittiest feeling? <laughs> well, I guess missing the kid's birth is mainly bad for the kid's mother, who would kind of probably like you to be there and, and help out and provide at least some moral support. Missing the kid's birthday is something the kid himself might remember years down the road. True, true. Shittiest feeling in the world is forgetting your anniversary or murdering your wife. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, that's it for this Master Street Theater. So, Nigel, what you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished wrapping an exciting new project about a vicious dog from a trailer park who can achieve anything he puts his mind to, even though we all basically laugh at him the whole time. I see. And what's it called? It's called Cujo Dirt. <laughs> and what role do you play? I play a Springer Spaniel that attacks David Spade. Just somehow it's getting worse. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir.
Well, Chad, as we kind of thought it would before this event, and yet not quite in the way that we thought it would, the middleweight picture in the UFC ends up being kind of interesting. We just talked about Luke Rockhold getting that win over Leota Machida, but in the co-main, your boy Ronaldo Souza, Chakare, Chakare. he goes out there. We don't get to see him fight the, you know, your your dude in the newsboy cap, Yoel Romero. The and soldier of dog. <laughs> the more I think about that, the more it feels like we might have been forever robbed of something fantastic. Because you go out there and you see Jacques Array take on Chris Camozzi again. Mm-hmm. And he goes out there and submits him again. Again. One minute faster a this minute, time. A minute faster. Uh, pulls off an awesome guard pass where he just walks along the fence and gets right around your guard. And then submits Camozzi. And Camozzi gets that look on his face that is familiar to many jiu-jitsu pr- practitioners right after you have to tap out to a submission to a dude who is just way better than you and... The look on your face just says, that dude is always going to be better than me. Damn it. Uh, and you know, that's, it's just kind of what it is. And then Jacare gets up there. Uh, he and his coaches make the sign of the belt around the waist. And then the UFC won't even let him get on the mic. Co-main event with yeah. a dude who, who could be one of your next big contenders in the middleweight division. And it's just, Hey, thanks for coming, Jacare. We'll see you in the back. Yeah. Well, they did run over a little bit, right? Went over there their time slot a little bit. Yeah, man, bit. we had time to talk about fucking Harley Davidson and how we're going to do like a fan sweepstakes around the next tough, like this really awkward sponsor plug thing with Dana White and Kurt Menefee just reading off of cards. And then we don't have time for, for Jacques Arrain. No, you're right. The time could have been budgeted slightly differently. I'm just saying by the time you get there, going over 8 o'clock or, or 10 o'clock in uh, – on Fox is probably a little bit bigger of a deal than going over on Fox Sports 1 where they're just going to join the college baseball game in, pro- in progress. They, they go over every single time. Yeah, I know. Uh, you're right, though, that the middleweight title picture is, is, is fun, and I think it's a good kind of problem to have. I, I tweeted somewhat facetiously after the event was over that what they ought to do is have a year-round a year-long round-robin tournament between Chris Weidman, Luke Rockhold, Jacare Souza, and Yoel Romero. Would uh, watch. Because that would be awesome. Um, and then a lot of people tweeted me back to ask me if I was forgetting about Vitor Belfort, and I kept this to myself, but yes, I'm obviously forgetting about <laughs> Vitor Belfort, because I would love to forget about Vitor Belfort, but you can't, because the guy is still going to fight Chris Weidman at, what, UFC 187, is that what it is? Yeah. UFC 188, something like that, for the middleweight title. But we talked about in the first round, uh, a lot of people overlooking Belfort in that fight, and the reason that that's happening, right, is that we all know now that Vitor Belfort is off his medicine, like we expect him... <laughs> Like, there's an expectation that he will go back to being the Vitor Belfort that everyone knew how to defeat for years and years and years uh, before testosterone replacement therapy came along. And Chris Weidman seems like the kind of guy that's kind of tailor-made to beat that version of Vitor Belfort. So I hear what everyone's saying. It is kind of unfair and totally like us to jump to conclusions that what we're going to get out of this is Luke Rockhold against Chris Weidman because Vitor could still win, but... It'll be interesting to see how he looks when he gets out there, Motherf- medicine-free. Motherfuckers act like they forgot about Vitor. I guess. The UFC won't let us, though, since no. he's got an unbe- an endless supply of rope for yeah. Vitor Belfort. <laughs> you know what? The thing is, I came out of this really feeling bad for Jacques Array, uh, because he talks in the afterwards, you know, the press conference or anything saying, like, I think I deserve to be the number one contender. You can absolutely see why he feels that way. You know, he's... Won all eight fights he's had since that decision loss to Luke Rockhold, and that was a close fight. 
Uh, it was a unanimous decision. Still a really close fight. He's won five straight in the UFC. He can't really help it if he can't get better, bigger opponents. I mean, he had one scheduled here, and it, it ended up getting yanked out from underneath him. You know, what do you want him to do? Really, like you can't ask him to do anything else than he's already done. And yet, the things that you point to, if you say like, "Hey, Luke Rockhold uh, deserves a next shot," is basically first quality of competition, uh, especially recently, and the head-to-head win over him. I mean, I guess you can blame him for the head-to-head win, uh, even though it was a close fight again. But like the other stuff, it just it feels like I know it must seem unfair to you, Jacques Array, but it's kind of Luke Rockhold's turn. Yeah, and like we talked about a week ago, that's sort of a delay that Jacare Souza can't really afford because he's 35 years old. He doesn't have all the time in the world to wait around and see how this stuff plays out. I guess if it does go that way, your best case scenario is that they still try to put together uh, Jacare Souza, Souza against Yoel Romero, a uh, dude who's 37, by the way, about to turn 38 on April 30th. What about his cat-like quickness? <laughs> I don't know, man. I hope he doesn't lose that. Because, uh, you know, that's still a fight that I think we all want to see and uh, a fight that you could put on almost any UFC show, any place on any UFC show, and it would still it would still sell. Um, so if we do get into a Luke Rockhold versus Chris Weidman slash Vitor Belfort type situation, which I think we are, uh Maybe Jacare against Yoel Romero can still happen, and we can all come over to my house to watch it. Well, yeah, and I saw a lot of people floating that idea of like, well, hey, if, if Luke Rockhold and Jacare are the two guys who look like they could either be uh, – either one of them could be number one contender, and if we've got Weidman and Belfort, they're going to want some time. Whoever wins that's going to want some time off afterwards. Like, why not have Jacare and Rockhold fight each other? And the thing is for me, I mean, we know how the UFC likes to do that stuff. If they have two guys who could equally be number one contenders, they don't generally like to throw them against each other and eliminate one, uh, because why would you? Like, why wouldn't you just keep them both around and, and, you know, plan for the future a little more? But also, like, I, in a weird way, and it seems like kind of contradictory for me to admit this, well, I don't think Jacques Array has done enough to earn the title shot over Luke Rockhold. I also don't necessarily feel like I need to see Jacare do anything more to get the title. Like if Luke Rockhold got injured uh, and Weidman was ready, you know, Weidman beats Belfort and is ready to take another fight and Luke Rockhold can't take it. And you tell me it's Weidman, Jacare, just with the record Jacare has right now. I got no problem with that. No, of course not. Like, But then, Jac- I'm, I, you know, the same, but I, we're also sitting here saying like, hey, you submitted Chris Camozzi for the second time, man. That's not right. a title shot material. No, no, and, and I think that that makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, but you know, Jocker Ray's won five in a row in the UFC and eight no eight in a row overall, like you said, dating back to that that loss to Rockhold. Uh, but still, to put Rockhold into this title shot over Jocker Ray, you kind of have to discount that Belfort loss, which we're all totally happy to do because we do think that Vel- Belfort was gassed up on TRT when it happened. It's weird for the UFC to do that a little bit because <laughs> yeah. you have to admit that Vitor Belfort was competing with an unfair advantage. And he's the dude who's going to go now fight for the title on the basis of what he did while you had that unfair advantage. But I digress. In a a larger sense, though, does it feel like the UFC has never been that into Jacare? And maybe I say that just because I keep him so close to my heart that it pains me to see the 35-year-old jujitsu ace kind of he's going to have to wait a little bit longer for this title shot. Uh, because I like everything about Jacare. Uh, you know, I think he's an exciting fighter to watch. He has kind of a wild but powerful, uh, striking style. He has better takedowns than almost any straight jujitsu guy. And once he gets you there, clearly 
Like he's, he's literally willing to walk across the wall to get in the position where he needs to be to put you in whatever submission hold he and his corner bet $10,000 that he would be able to get <laughs> on you, uh, during the fight. So like, I don't know, man. It just seems a little bit weird that the, I guess they are, they, they say that Jacare has an outside chance to get the, the number one contendership and they won't confirm Luke Rockhold as number one contender, but, it just kind of feels like to me like they're a little bit lukewarm on the guy. Well, when you're in the business of selling pay-per-views, especially to a mostly North American English-speaking audience, uh, I'm sure when asked to choose between the uh, handsome surfer guy who's been on Millionaire Matchmaker and the Brazilian dude who doesn't speak a whole lot of English, like I think that that's really more the deciding factor for them than anything else. I'm sure, like you know, knowing the matchmakers. Uh, Joe Silva and, and John Shelby, I'm sure you know they love them some jujitsu guys. So I don't know if it's like a a problem with his style or anything. I think it's just that if they compare him with Luke Rockhold, they know who's probably gonna gonna put more money in their pocket at the end of the day. What does Globo want though? Yeah, well, it's been a while since we heard from Globo. They used to be such influential players on the scene. <laughs> that's right. And now, like, they're all about where, that Vitor. Where's Globo at, man? We haven't heard what Globo wants for going on a year. Won't anybody think about what Globo wants? All right. Well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number three. Uh, ben, we're going to do a kind of a joint Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week. Um, but why don't you go ahead and kick us off since, uh, I know you're champing at the bit over there to get to it. Well, Chad, this one. I'm sure we all remember, or at least if we were actually watching the fight past prelims, we remember Tim Means at UFC on Fox 15. He goes out there, gets a submission win over George Sullivan, and then who does he call out, Chad? My employer? Your employer! Over there Bleacher Report. Bleacher Report. He also then later kind of extends this to the, the MMA media at large. Uh, and, you know, he had some beef with something that Bleacher Report wrote, and we all, you know... uh no, Go ahead. Go ahead and say, we all jumped to some conclusions. We all thought, okay, Bleacher Report done fucked up again. Uh, and then we go and I read the thing, which you claim to have confirmation that Timmean said, yes, this is the thing I was upset about. Yep. Uh, Intrepid Bleacher Report reporter Dwayne Finley asked him in person, and he confirmed it. So Bleacher Report outreported everyone. Kind of funny, right, Ben? <laughs> what we have here is right? a predictions column, uh, predicting the, the prelims. And, you know, the, the, the writer, uh, Riley Contech, I don't know if I'm saying that right, uh, 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 chooses Sullivan, uh, in a, in a decision, uh, but, and, but writes mostly complimentary stuff of Tim Means. I guess what he's complaining about is, uh, the line, he is primarily a striker, possessing strong leg kicks, good straight punches, and the length to make it all work. That's what you're mad about, Tim Means? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you either, like, you know, the most sensitive guy in the world, or you you just were mad that they didn't pick you, or what, man? Especially, Tim Means encouraged uh, the MMA media afterwards to don't just write an opinion in the paper, which, again, he's talking about BleacherReport.com. Not a paper. Um, but write the facts. It's a prediction column, man. There aren't really that many facts to go off of. Yeah. The person is giving an opinion about what will happen in the future. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Thanks, by the way, to everyone who tweeted, chortled, laughed, and or wrote their trading shots columns about that without actually figuring out what Tim Means was mad about. Well, we, we talk about it in the trading shots. All right. Maybe if you read the trading shots, you'd know what we talked about before about, you're talking about the trading I read shots. It, I read it down to the link to my website. <laughs> and then I, I 
quit after that. that. Sounds I'll right. get back to it. Don't, don't you worry. Ben, uh, we already mentioned the stuff that Luke Rockhold said in his post-fight interview with Joe Rogan where he thought Machida would be faster and thanked most of his sponsors. But part of that list included the terrible plagiarism website, bjpen.com. And so I guess the special are you fucking kidding me goes out to this since I'm just not sure that I'm ready to live in a world where new number one contender BJ or, uh, uh, Luke Rockhold thanks bjpen.com in his post-fight interview and Tim Means rips on my employer for a thing that now that we've read it turns out to be completely innocuous. Are you fucking kidding me? I think we see what you need to do now to have fighters feel like the MMA media is doing its job. Um, pick all of them in your predictions column mm-hmm. somehow. Draw. Draw. Hard fought one. draw. <laughs> Everyone respects them more in the um, wake of it. Also, maybe pay them as a sponsor. And then just copy and paste everybody else's stuff. I mean, why not? That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, UFC 186 is right around the corner this Saturday from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And once again, we are put in a position where I think we need to feel a little bit bad for UFC flyway champion Demetrius Johnson. Seems like he's always in the worst place at the worst time. UFC 186 obviously was originally intended to include TJ Dillashaw's rematch with Henan Barrow for the UFC Bantamweight Championship. It was also intended to contain uh, Quentin Rampage Jackson's uh, illustrious return to the octagon against Fabio Maldonado. Obviously, both those fights fell out. Uh, in one, we got a replacement. In the other, we got a postponement. And now we're going to roll into 186 with Demetrius Johnson taking on Kyoji Horiguchi, who is a tough dude, but little, little known as a challenger for a UFC championship. Uh, I feel like at some point we got to stop feeling bad for Demetrius Johnson, right? But this seems once again like the UFC flyweight champion is put in a position where he really can't win. Yeah, but you also have to consider, like, imagine just for the sake of argument, say that all the same stuff happened to a card that John Jones was headlining, right? Like, we wouldn't be like, oh, poor John Jones. He's not really getting any support here because we'd still be like, well, if it's if John Jones is on that card, we're probably still going to buy it. Uh, it would be nice if it had a good undercard, but damn it, we're all going to tune in to see John Jones fight. So, I mean, I do think this tells us something about just how even those of us who really like Demetrius Johnson and really respect his skills and acknowledge uh, what a martial artist he is still kind of feel like, yeah, but you can't just give me Demetrius Johnson if you want me to pay 70 bucks or whatever it is. Like, you you need to to give me something a little bit more... Uh, than, than just the UFC flyweight champion right now. I mean, that's just kind of how we feel. Like you, you, you gotta bolster him with stuff, which tells you something about him just from the, from the get go. Yeah, well, he obviously is a kind of an unassuming guy. Uh, to his credit, I think he's taking a sort of, if you don't buy my fights, that's your problem kind of a, uh, uh, an approach which isn't going to sell any more pay-per-views than you would otherwise, but, uh, is sort of, you know, uh, uh, 
unflinching, I think, from him, which which from the emerging 125 pound champion is is I appreciate that. I guess you would say um, is the project problem, though, just Demetrius Johnson's like attitude and fighting style, though, because like. You know, there, I think being 125 pounds doesn't help, but like, if Conor McGregor was 125 pounds, I have a feeling he would still be a big star on the UFC. So is this. Yeah, his voice would just be a little bit higher. <laughs> but other than that, it'd still be a big star. Is this just a situation where like flyweight hasn't really found the personality to latch on to yet? And let's face it, Demetrius Johnson hasn't had a ton of help in that regard. Like, he fought Chris Carriasso in his last fight. He fought Ali Bagutinov in the fight before that. Like, Joseph Benavidez obviously is a guy with personality to spare. You could say the same thing maybe about uh, John Dodson, maybe the same thing about. Ian McCall, but we're starting to feel a little bit more removed from title defenses against those guys. And now, you know, we're, we're treading into the, like, uh, the, the territory of guys like Horiguchi, who obviously he's won, uh, four fights in the UFC in a row and he's 15 and one overall. He's a tough dude. He shapes up like he could be kind of a tough test for Demetrius Johnson, actually, but like as a guy nobody knows about. So like, not only is Demetrius Johnson not checking all of the boxes in terms of like marketability, he's also not you know, getting a lot of help from the competition. That's true. And I mean, some of that maybe you can just chalk up to the young division that, you know, just hasn't been around that long. We, I mean, you look at uh, what's happened with featherweight and bantamweight fairly recently, right? Like where it used to be before, like, oh man, you get below 155, maybe even below 170, and it's hard to sell pay-per-views with these guys. And now you look at featherweight and it's some of the most interesting shit the UFC has got to offer. Bantamweight is getting better too, thanks to guys like TJ Dillashaw and stuff like that. But now you look at flyweight as the one that's kind of lagging behind and part of it like you're right that you know Demetrius Johnson maybe is not the most electrifying champion as far as capturing the imaginations of the fans but also he's got to fight somebody and he he hasn't gotten a whole lot of help in that regard I also though feel like we're constantly wondering like what's going to be the thing like is it that the you need to put him on Fox is it that you need to put him on a big pay-per-view where there's another draw so that like if we can just get people to accidentally see Demetrius Johnson fight that maybe they'll fall in love with it and it just doesn't seem to be happening yeah i feel like there's a story out there with demetrius johnson man like living in seattle being the sorcerer's apprentice okay to matt hume training at like one of the oldest uh and and most respected really uh mma camps in amc pancration there in seattle where obviously josh barnett trained for a while and matt hume was a fighter before he became a coach and was a guy who frankly was like really far ahead of his time as a fighter. If you go back now and watch Matt Hume's fight uh, with uh, who's the guy who's Barnett's coach, the grappler uh, catch wrestling guy. Yeah. I'm blanking on his name blonde, right now. Yeah. Guy. Uh, uh, Paulson, Eric Paulson, yeah, Eric Paulson. Those guys had a fight. I think it was him. You go back and watch that. Uh, and that is a fight that looks like it could have happened a couple of years ago. And in fact, it was like, you know, early 2000s or maybe even late 90s. Um, Plus, I got the white mats over there and everything, giving it some kind of, like, Matrix training zone feel. Yeah, so, like, I feel like there is something interesting there with Demetrius Johnson, like, essentially being the disciple of Matt Hume and being, like... Uh, the guy who's largely or a lot of times credited as being the most complete, most technically able MMA fighter in the world. Uh, and yet no one cares because he's this little kind of unassuming guy. And like, I don't know, man, I feel like for all the like feature writers out there that are looking for an idea, 
The Sorcerer's Apprentice. You can use my headline, even. Like, I feel like there's got to be something interesting going on there. Man, we're like an eight-hour drive from Seattle. How about we'll, we'll drive in shifts. Right after we leave here. We'll share a, uh, a byline on I'll just, it. I'll leave a note for my daughter. Yeah. She can't read, but she can carry it next door and ask the neighbors what it says. <laughs> yeah, in this neighborhood, I, I don't know if the people next door will be able to read. It depends which direction she goes, I guess. Uh, did you look up Matt Hume while I was talking? I did, yeah. Did he fight Eric Paulson? He did. Okay, he, I'm he good. Won. I'm glad I didn't just totally make all of that up. It which is shows possible. him winning a TKO via a cut at Extreme Fighting 3 on October 18th, 1996. Yeah. But kind of a long fight, wasn't it? Does it have a time on that? Third round, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a good fight. It's on the internet somewhere. Well, I'll have to look At least that I remember up. it being a good fight. By 2015 standards, maybe it's terrible. I don't know. After, you know, having stood in a department store while Eric Paulson described to me and a store clerk how he uh, choreographed a fight scene between himself and David Hasselhoff on Baywatch, I will watch now pretty much anything Eric Paulson does. That sounds awesome. It was. Is that when Josh Burnett was buying boots? He was buying a coat. Oh, a coat. That's right. That's right. And at one point, Eric Paulson disappeared uh, from sight, which we should have known was a bad idea, and came back, and it turns out he had been at the men's fragrance counter and had sprayed, got himself sprayed all about his arms with different colognes that he wanted me to smell. Like he'd just like stick like his wrist and then his forearm and then the other wrist and the other forearm, and he'd be like, "What do you? Th- how about that one? Oh no, that, okay, no, this one. This one's the one." And you're like, "All right, this is this is gonna be a fun one to write up." Well, I mean, if you're gonna be an MMA coach, you gotta be good at making your own fun. And you also yeah. got to be good at killing time, yes. especially when there's a pesky reporter around bothering your guy. Yeah. Got to distract the reporter so that your guy can get his coat on. All right. Well, anything you want to say about Demetrius Johnson versus Kyoji Horiguchi? Demetrius Johnson probably wins, but that's because he's the best flyweight in the world. But you- Kyoji Horiguchi is tough, dude. I don't like I don't think we should just completely discount him in this fight. Have you looked at the odds? I have not. Uh, I'm looking at him right now. Uh, Horiguchi, you can find him at around a six to seven to one underdog. Well, my um, daughter's savings is going on that right now. <laughs> as soon as we're done here, and yeah. I leave her the note. We drive to Seattle before we leave. I'm stopping it's, by the bookie. It's going to be amazing how she left today and everything was fine. And she comes back home. Her life is ruined. Uh, Demetrius Johnson, uh, looks like the best, like most favorable line you can get on him is, uh, just, just barely south of nine to one favorite as high as a 10 to one favorite, according to some people. So wow, they don't agree that Horiguchi is quite as tough as you think. I think he's going to turn out to be a good opponent. I don't think he's going to win, but I think he'll do okay. Uh, all right, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, uh, this week, my just saying stuff is UFC 186 related. So it's topical. It's got that going for it. And it comes in the form of some fun fact or a fun fact, I guess, about Steve Bossy, the former semi-pro hockey goon tabbed by the UFC to replace Rampage Jackson against Fabio Maldonado. Uh, we already knew that that Bossy is from Montreal as the UFC's press release announcing him against Maldonado so generously referred to him as a quote unquote local fighter. Which huh. that paints a picture. Okay. Uh, we already knew that he's got a professional record of 10 and 1, and he has wins over such luminaries as Wes Sims, Houston Alexander, and Marvin the Beastman Eastman. Uh, which, you know, I guess if we're being perfectly honest, that actually makes him like not a terrible replacement opponent for Fabio Maldonado. Uh, but Ben, 
the the fun fact of which I was not aware about Steve Bossy until today when I looked him up on the internet, and this is the icing on the cake of this pay-per-view matchup, and it is that Steve Bossy is already retired. What? He was signed by the UFC last March. He was going to take on Ryan Jimmo uh, at some Canadian event, I guess. Uh, but then he announced that uh, he had to, he was going to call it a career due to lingering inju- injuries. Which spontaneously healed, I guess. Well, he's, he hasn't fought since 2013, so he had some time to, to, to figure that out. But uh, I don't know, man. I guess I'm just saying... Like when it came time to replace Rampage Jackson, we couldn't even find someone who was an active fighter. Like we just had to find this this local fighter, former hockey goon, who also, on top of all that, retired. Hey, look, you can you can have a local guy or you can have an active fighter. You can't have both. All right. Yeah. Well, maybe if someone would have been standing by in another town, they could have jumped in. I don't know. Well, Chad, I'm just saying. You know, after Paige Van Zandt's win and Dana White was looking to kind of propel her star even a little bit higher, wanted to point out to all the media members uh, exactly what a big superstar uh, this young fighter is, uh, he tried to do it this way. Quote, everybody in my dressing room tonight wanted to meet her, so we brought her back, and she's got that thing. I'm just saying, let me take you back a few years to a quote from a different promoter. I've been to a high-class steakhouse with Kimbo, and I've seen it, said Gary Shaw. People, not just the young kids, all stand up and say, Kimbo, hey, there's Kimbo. You could take most of the best fighters in the world and have them walk into a place like that, and the Mater D would say, okay, we'll have a table for you in 40 minutes. Kimbo is a superstar right now, and he's only going to get bigger. I'm just saying, maybe saying Paige Van Zandt is a superstar because the people in your personal dressing room want to meet her is the new Kimbo can walk into a steakhouse, and he's a superstar. Just saying. I'm just saying. Wow. So you're saying that, like, in a decade or so, maybe Paige Van Zandt's taking on Ken Shamrock in in Bellator. Or whoever the Ken Shamrock equivalent is now. I don't know. Who would that be? I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to figure it out. Uh, maybe we'll have an answer for that next week. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to uh, catch you up on all the stuff that happens at UFC 186. Look ahead to whatever the UFC event of that following weekend will be. We'll figure it out. Um, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So with your cat-like quickness gone, what what animal would you like in your quickness to now at age 37? Now it's, it's, it's more like aging dog quickness. Like, okay. I'll get there, man. You know, it's, I'm not incapable of getting there, but I'm also not in a...